This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome, everyone. This is the Meaningful Sport Podcast, and I am your host, Nora Ronkainen. Meaningful Sport is a series of discussions on the why and how involvement in sport and physical activity can be an important part of a life worth living. If you are interested in the theme, you might also want to check out MeaningfulSport.com. There you can find podcast show notes, read a blog, and access many resources for further explorations of meaningful sport. Developing a meaningful and balanced work life can be challenging for sport workers as well as academics. In both domains, there is often pressure to work long hours to produce performance outputs, which can easily interfere with other meaningful pursuits and family life. Moreover, in sport and academia, efforts have been made on supporting women's careers, but as we know, much work remains to be done. I have the pleasure to explore these topics with a scholar who has had a significant contribution to understanding the work lives of people working in the sport industry. Recently, she has also shared her personal reflections on sustaining a meaningful career in academia. Marlon Dixon is a professor of sport management at Texas A&M University. Her research has explored various areas, including girls' and women's participation in sport, the work-life interface of sport workers, and sport for development. In this first part of our conversation, we will focus on her recent reflections on meaningful careers in academia. Welcome to the podcast, Marlene. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. Thanks for having me. Yes, I've been looking forward to our conversation. And so there are many topics I'd like to explore, but I thought that for this first part, we would be talking about careers and finding meaning in academia. And why I wanted to do this is that I read your recent, your award address. So you received the Earl F. Ziegler Award a couple of years ago. And then this award address was also recently published as a journal article. And so we thought it was just very timely and resonating as there is growing awareness that many academics and especially early career researchers are struggling with their work and asking these questions of what is a sustainable, what is a meaningful career in academia. So let's start just by exploring how this idea uh, for choosing to address this topic came about. I think... uh... As, as I just sort of walked through what I thought I would like to say to the field, a lot of the things that I wanted to say resonate in work-life balance. But as I walked through, you know, mapping it out, I thought, actually, it's much bigger than that. It's not just about work-life balance. It's about the whole part of your career. And I kind of thought about, okay, what are maybe the top 10 things I would want to say uh, to young scholars. And I think that's probably the audience that this has fit a lot with is, is young scholars, which makes me happy because 
that's kind of who I was hoping it might resonate with. And that's kind of the audience within academia that I'm passionate about. And so I think that's where it started, right? What would be my top 10 things I would say to doc students or people who are emergent in the field and kind of then winnowed down from there to five? Ten's a bit much. Um, <laughs> and so that's kind of where it came from, is I really actually had hoped that it would speak to young scholars and and what I thought might be, was both meaningful to me, but might also be helpful to them. Yeah. I read your address, it was later published also as a journal article. I picked it up that you have a few quotes from uh, Confucius. So I was just wondering if he's one of your favorite philosophers, and if so, are there also others who you think can give us some guidance in terms of our work lives and lives more broadly? I appreciate Confucius. I don't know that I guess I would say I'm a huge fan. I appreciate his work, but I appreciate a lot of, and I think that's part of the lifelong learner theme of that is simply that we can learn a lot from a lot of different people and maybe people we didn't think originally would be able to speak to us or that we might be resistant to. I think that one of the things I've learned over time is to embrace a broad perspective of philosophies, worldviews, life paths, perspectives in a, in a lot of different ways, right? It's not just about gender and race and culture, but also about worldview, also about your life path and where you've walked from your upbringing and the specific experiences that people have walked through. And so, no, I think he's just uh, illustrative, but mm-hmm. I also think that the point is that we should be open to a lot of perspectives and to see what we can learn from other people and not prejudge any particular perspective based on our biases that we that we bring into it. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think what you mentioned that, for example, gender is one of the big topics that is often addressed in career development literature, and this is certainly very important. But like you mentioned, there are also these other perspectives such as life philosophy or worldview. I've done some work on spirituality and how it shapes how athletes approach their sport. And so I think this kind of sense of people can have quite different philosophies and perspectives on how to pursue an academic career. This is quite important for us, especially when the academia is trying to channel us all into this achieving more and more trajectory. Yeah, for sure. And I would say my own faith background very much informs not only my work, but my person. Um, and you know, in, in, in both being a lifelong learner and also being authentic, I think that uh, that's been something that's been hugely important to me is to be able to know what I believe and why, to live out things that are very core to my being in ways that don't sort of, I guess, sell my soul in the process. Yeah. So you're narrowing down to five big themes and this lifelong learning is certainly important. And now you've touched upon authenticity as well. And I think this is one thing that especially as still as early career researcher and having many colleagues and talking to colleagues is that somehow you need to balance what you're really passionate about And then on the other hand, what can get funded and what can help you to pursue this career. So you also have some thoughts on this. It's it's quite challenging for us because 
somehow you need to keep going without selling your soul, just yeah. like you said. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's been a couple of things along the way that have been helpful to me in that. And probably the first is that in my first three or four years out of my doctoral program, staying open to other ideas and not just what I did my dissertation work in. So I think that's been, that was really important and actually allowing myself to think much more broadly because I think in our dissertation work, we have to get specific and we have to become an expert in a topic. And for most of us, that's the first time we really dug in that deep in the literature. And so it ends up by the end of your doctoral program kind of narrowing your view because you're so focused on that one thing. And I think I had the luxury in the three or four years right out of my PhD to have a little bit of space because I was in a lecturer position. I wasn't in a tenure track right out of school. So I actually had an opportunity to expand my thinking and to go visit colleagues at other universities, to meet with colleagues at conferences and things like that and ask a million questions and actually get probably too broad um, <laughs> and probably take on too many projects that were here and there so that I had an idea of what pathways I did want to go down and didn't want to go down. So I probably went from pretty small to too big to back to a more of a right size. And once I kind of got to that right size and had some colleagues who helped me understand a, a sufficient um, research agenda that would be able to travel for a couple of years. And the way that Lawrence Chalup explained it, which has, I've, I've still remember, is he talked about having your sort of main um, ball of work that you do. If you think about a ball of yarn and you have that main ball of work that you do, and then as projects come and opportunities come, you think, okay, is this um, a small enough piece and it has reasons, right? very legitimate reasons for me to do this work? Does it connect me to somebody? Does it, is it fundable? Does it connect me to a cool opportunity? What do those things look like? But doesn't shift my core. It's enough for me to stay in my core, but there's really deliberate reasons I would take on this project. Or is it something that's significant enough that it would actually shift your whole core? And so I definitely, I think early on, people actually have to be fairly open to lots of ideas and to lots of um, projects, if you will, and to maybe even pursuing things that they thought were outside of their realm. And even if it's chasing a little bit of funding, because at that career stage, actually, you can sort of afford to do that. And it's okay to hustle up a bit in things that aren't exactly your core, because you don't really know if they're your core or not. Um, and I think the broader people can be as young scholars within their capacity, um, it actually gives you a chance to pursue things that you might not have thought and then you find out, okay, then you come to every stage with that and then decide, okay, this is shifting my core. I want to stay with this. I actually like this. Or no, I need to get back off of this project and move to what is more my core. This is taking too much time away from the things that I'm really passionate about. So I don't think it's so bad to 
to chase some things, I think we actually have to get bigger before we actually can define really who we are and what we're about. Mm. I think it's a really good point. And I think often, well, myself included, you start with your PhD and then this is something that you're really passionate about. And so the notion of authenticity shouldn't be taken to mean that there is this one thing and this is you and everything else is not you. But what I also see that as I've expanded to exploring different areas, that you know this can also be authentic you. And so in this sense, not to get stuck into one version of this is what I am about and this is what I'm pursuing. So I'm curious if you had, you said about sustaining this core or then sometimes there might be some sort of turning point where you actually shift the core. So whether you had those shifts or whether you can see like a core that runs through your career? Well, I think early on I was more broad. I would have said I was more broadly about human resource management, but in actually asking those kinds of questions about what are the practices, what are the human resource management um, policies and practices, and what are the ways that we manage people within contexts, the whole, what, what kept popping out was work-life balance. And in fact, that was not a question I was originally asking. It emerged from the research. And so as that came out of some of that early work, and then I started asking those same questions with Jenny McGarry, we're kind of like, wow, actually, there's a whole lot to do specifically in this. So that was a big shift. And then I think working with various doctoral students has shifted me here and there in various ways. Um, the work with Stacy Warner never really intended to go down a sense of community path, but she was passionate about that and it ended up being uh, that I got passionate about it too after she was and kind of continued in, in that realm. And other doc students have done things that ended up just being theirs and I didn't really end up following that. But then uh, the stuff in mentoring that Darren Kelly pursued was really resonated with me. And then through some external sources and relationships, the sport for development work sort of emerged from a practical side. And in doing that from a practical side, it really motivated me to shore up in the literature on that and start joining the conversation there. And that was, you know, people like Paris Vinson, Emma Sherry were fabulous to help me get up to speed on that literature and to help me get, you know, you get to a mid-career and you think, okay, as a doc student, you have all this time to read and really immerse yourself in the literature. At mid-career, there's this 20 years of sport for development work and you're thinking, man, I got to, how am I going to get in this midstream at this point in my career? And they were really instrumental to sort of give me a tutorial and help me get up to speed so that I could make that shift too. And probably that's my more recent shift that was unexpected as well. Yeah, sometimes these unexpected things that happen to us can actually take in, is us into quite exciting new directions. So I think this is a message in terms of being open to what might <laughs> come to your way. You already mentioned mentoring as being part of this one of the things that you wanted to lift for early career researchers in terms of thinking to how to sustain a meaningful career. So building these 
relationships is really important in academia. And one thing that you do is uh, clearly highlight the benefits for both parties. So it's not just a give and take relationship. So perhaps you can also share in terms of how you feel that mentoring relationships, when you've been in both roles at different stages of your career, how you feel that this has enriched your work life? Yeah, Mm, that's a good question. Um, You know, I guess I think of, if I think about me being being mentored and the ways that I was mentored, some of those things sort of fall in place and you just build relationships with people who come into your path and surprising people who you ended up being mentored by that where you just kind of got lucky. But I think there's other situations where it can be intentional. Um, And the more I am around things, the more I mentor young faculty, we actually talk about building those kinds of mentoring constellations. And I think if I think about uh, what kinds of different boxes somebody might fit in in a mentoring constellation, the literature suggests, and I would also think they were true for me, is not you can't just have one mentor because one person can't be everything to you. And so I think there's a couple key categories that are really important. One would be like a social or a relational mentor, somebody who really you can just talk to and somebody who hears you and gets you and may not even be in academia. It's just somebody that is really a confidant and a safe person and, and someone who always has your back and lifts you up and encourages you. I think a second one is a category is kind of your power mentors. If you think of power networks, and especially within a particular university, who are the people who are going to help you get access to what's really going on in the university or how to get access to grants or how to get access to funding or how to get access and understand the tenure and promotion process and that are really going to guide you through that and help you through that. I think that's important. I think there's, um, I'm going to call them minesweepers. Uh, And I've had a couple of those that have been really important um, in my career of people who are sort of your political minesweepers that help you understand what what things you should get into and what things you could shouldn't. I remember uh, as a young faculty member, I had a colleague who would just early faculty meetings, for example, right? And she'd say, "Okay, in this faculty meeting, you need to say one or two things. You need to be sure that you speak up one or two times, but don't get in any arguments and don't go out of your wheelhouse. But don't sit through this whole meeting. You actually need to have your voice heard one or two times. And I thought, okay. And so just different different advice like that, or, hey, here's a person you should probably have lunch with at some time. Here's a person you should never have lunch with, right? <laughs> those kinds of things. And then I think also probably I'm going to call this your practical mentors. So these are people who help you write, help you ask good questions, who you actually can get on grants with, who actually help you with your publications. And sometimes again, those people are not necessarily the same people that you need to lean on from a social or relational standpoint. So I think it's important, and we actually do with that with our young faculty here, is who's your intentional four or five person constellation and what role do they fill? And then the other mentors that you pick up along the way are sort of bonus. 
Yeah, so you highlight that there can be quite a broad range of mentors from giving you quite practical advice in terms of how you (laughs) deal with a faculty meeting and then these practical things. But then also having these people who you can just talk to. I think what I also find important to have those people around you with whom you can really talk about your doubts and even existential issues. Is this meaningful what I'm doing? Like, is this worth, for example, worth all this effort that I'm putting in? I think these things are often, at least in when we're talking about academic career development, like support resources and different courses, at least that I've taken in different universities, like often these deeper questions are not then addressed. Can you see purpose in what you're doing and kind of what helps to sustain you in this pathway? So this is why I also thought that your award address was quite important in terms of also thinking of these things in a deeper level. Yeah. Also have the benefit of a very uh, practical and insightful husband who keeps me grounded and helps me answer those questions about, is this all worth it? And does anyone care about the kinds of things that we're talking about? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, exactly. You use the concept of faithfulness in your address. And this is really about somehow continuing despite all these discouraging experiences you might have in the academia high pressure, we all get rejected with our grants and our papers and all these things. And so I also read a little bit of the literature around academic careers and how people make sense of it. And at least some studies are kind of showing that in the middle of all this pressure and this constant, everything is being quantified, that sometimes it is really difficult to see that is our work actually contributing to something beyond is it making some kind of difference is it making an impact if we are just kind of racing this <laughs> race to produce more publications that perhaps nobody's going to read at least outside of academia so does it really contribute to in some ways making the world better yeah But, you know, and it's interesting, I think everybody has to sort of find their path in terms of, do I want to stay in this? Do I want to stay in this at the place that I'm at? I've seen a lot of young faculty who, and actually mid-career faculty, who actually decided it wasn't that they wanted out of academia. Mm -hmm. They just either needed a different context, meaning they they just were dying in the school they were in, right? Mm -hmm. Or... For there can be a lot of reasons um, for that, but also maybe it's a research line that has just dried up and they got to get something fresh. Sometimes it's, I really wanted to be a teacher and I went ahead and went into a heavy research line because that was the opportunity, but that isn't who I am and it's killing my soul. Mm. Let me go find more teaching or maybe I'm teaching my head off and I really have no time to write, and I really want to say all these things and do these projects. So I think it's really important for people to check at every point in their career if it's still working for them and if it's still meaningful. And to be able to say, just because I started down this path doesn't mean I have to stay in this path. Mm -hmm. And just because I have a PhD behind my name doesn't mean I have to work in academia. Mm -hmm. 
Um, there's lots of things and just, and, and you're not sort of selling out <laughs> to pick something different. And I think I've found a lot of joy in walking alongside and, and talking with colleagues who've made that choice too. Mm-hmm. And the thing that they felt was, was authentic to them was actually getting out of it. And I, I think we have to leave some more freedom for that. In sport, we so talk about all these things like we champion something about the grind and we champion something about being able to make the sacrifice. And in doing so, sometimes we put down people who couldn't hack it, didn't make the sacrifice, and they just they couldn't do the grind long term. And I'm thinking, why why do we need to beat that up? Why don't we just honor that as a equally valid choice as something else. And so I think we have to be careful in championing people who do the grind, if we're going to call it that long-term, who choose to stay in academia long-term as being, we have to be careful in, in making that a superior choice than someone who chooses differently. Yeah, this is what I fully agree upon. And yeah, having broad variety of role models and making these stories visible of people who maybe they did a PhD and maybe a postdoc, but then they pursued some other career. And for some people, this is the best path for them. But then also if if academia is a meaningful choice, then to see that there are these options in terms of more research intensive or teaching intensive. And personally, I also find it a good thing that, for example, with research grants, there is now increased attention to social engagement and making sure that these things reach also audience outside of academia. And so you could feel it in a way that now it's just extra work to do, but actually you can end up in very interesting conversations when you engage in with a broader audience and try to make your research accessible to people who are not academics and who don't use these concepts that you use. So I think it's also a good thing in terms of uh, reaching out beyond our academic audience. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, Maybe the last part, you also mentioned this work-life interface, which is a big part of your actual research in the sport industry. And Just when talking to early career researchers in academia, you make the point that we shouldn't think of it exclusively as a conflict, that there is a work-life conflict and somehow you need to deal with this conflict that is inevitable. But you mentioned that also in your own life, there has been this enrichment from both sides. So maybe just a few encouraging words on how we might (laughs) experience it this way. Yeah. I guess that's part of, you know, some people handle it differently. Um, Some people are very, you know, segmenters and that's what works for them. But for me, I find that I'm very integrated, very much of a spillover and my family spills over into work and my work spills over into family. And I think that there's been some really fun, enriching things around that in terms of, for example, my kids have traveled with me some on on uh, research trips or conferences. Uh, My children came as babies, (laughs) as infants, to some NASM conferences. Uh, I had the opportunity one year to bring my daughter to ESOM. That was in Coventry, and we had such a lovely time 
Um, and, you know, she sat in the back and listened to her movies and giggled a little bit and kind of brought a little light to that classroom. Um, and we also had fun going to, and, and she expanded her horizons going to Warwick Castle and, and some different things there. And we actually had an opportunity to go with other faculty to Warwick Castle, and they sure enjoyed having a, I think she was six at the time, having a six-year-old along to enlighten that. And my kids have gone on some study abroad trips with us. They've gone on some research projects in, in Kenya. And so I think that's been great. But I've also um, incorporated, like students are welcome in my home. Uh, my grad students, uh, my doc students in particular, have always been welcome in my home and they know my kids and my family. And I think that they also feel like that helps them stay grounded. And um, a lot of times they're, you know, in a city that's away from their family. And so they enjoy the opportunity to actually be in someone's home and be a part of someone's life. Much broader perspective than than just, you know, writing papers together. So uh, I think both ways. I mean, I know it's not for everyone, but I can't see it any other way. It's been so great. And even though sometimes it's hard to juggle it all, I can't imagine not having both. Yeah, I think these are inspirational words in terms of how you can actually enrich both sides in your life. It's really important to think of how we frame all these things. like. Another example with youth sports research where I've done some work recently and there have been the debates whether you talk about dropout or opt out from sport. And so is it inherently negative or is it that some young people decide that for them pursuing something else is uh, what is right for them? So I think also this sense of there can be this enriching aspect, it can help us to think about these things and also choose differently in our everyday lives when we think of uh, think of this balance. Yeah. So thank you so much, Marlene. A lot to think of and a lot to reflect on. So let's finish up for the first part. We have a little break. And in the second part, we'll talk about your work in the sport context. So thank you so much. Great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you use. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.